have thought it best to send the Night Watchman out. The crowd want to cheer Ricky. Welcome to the Night Watchman podcast. I'm John Hotton. Across this series, we've laid siege to the game from several angles. Is it mysterious? Is it funny? Does it have a spirit? We've discussed the wood that makes the bats and the numbers that lie behind the miracle of the Don. We've taken a walk through the transforming weirdness of some of its language and its customs. I'm not sure how we round all of that off or somehow sum it up. It seems too much for a single life. Our guest today has given it a good go without ever making it seem as though cricket is the be-all and end-all. Mike Atherton has held two of the great offices of the game, that of England men's captain and cricket correspondent of the Times, a unique double and one that he rounds off as one of Sky's commentators too. Plenty of former players jump across into media, but it's hard to think of any since perhaps Richie Benno that have embraced their second life in the way that Mike has. If he mentions his playing days, it's with kind of a wry smile, and perhaps that's something to do with the age in which he played, probably the most challenging for any batsman, the era in which the record for most test wickets doubled from Hadley's 400 to Murley's 800, an era that began with Malcolm Marshall, Patrick Patterson, Courtney Walsh and Kirtley Ambrose, took in Wasim and Wakar, included the 1,000-plus wickets taken by Glenn McGrath and Shane Warne for Australia and the other 1,000 taken by Alan Donald, Sean Pollock and Jacques Callis for South Africa, not to mention the appearance of reverse swing and mystery spin. Good luck batting against that lot. And yet Mike made 7,700 test runs, a total that included 1,600s and a couple of pretty legendary 99s. In his Crick Info tribute, Tanya Aldred described his media persona as one of impeccable grumpiness, the complete opposite, I'll argue, of his presence since, where his writing in particular has marked him out as a genuine voice for the game. Mike, I know it's a trite question to start with, but do you think you were happier now or happier then, playing or observing? <laughs> Good question. Um, I, I don't think anything quite beats playing. Um, I loved uh, having a career in in the first class game and, and playing for Lancashire and England, some of the happiest memories that I'll ever have. But equally, I've been very happy in a post playing career as well, observing, uh, watching, writing, commentating. Um, I've found that it 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 suits me to some extent. I, I've been surprised how kind of closely I've stayed involved with the game. I didn't quite envisage it was going to be like that but yeah. I found that it suits my character to kind of stand back and observe I'm almost as happy uh, as an observer and somebody on the sidelines rather than necessarily right at, at the heart of it as, as I was for 15 years or so so I found that you know the transition has come happily for me and I've thoroughly enjoyed writing and, and commentating about the game for the last well it's 20 years or so now, which seems an incredible amount of time. It's interesting that you use the phrase at the heart of the game for the players. Do you think that's true or do you see the game's hinterland as wider than that, incorporating everyone that's in the environment at the time? Well, I, I think when you're a player, you you don't quite see the hinterland. You know, I'm sure we'll get on to cricket writing and, and observing the game, but you know, as a, as a kid and as a player, I, I just, I, I didn't read about the game. I, I, I really didn't have much of a clue about the history of the game and, and all that went with it, the spirit of the game and all the things that kind of make the game great. Um, I just played. I, I, as a kid, I spent every hour of the day playing when I could. 
And then obviously, as a professional player in, in those days, um, without central contracts, you just played seven days a week most of the time. Yeah. Um, and I really didn't. I didn't read about the game when I played. Um, in fact, I didn't want to read about the game because often, as I was playing some of the most high-profile games, I was often reading about myself, which I absolutely hated. I couldn't think of anything worse. So until I stopped playing and started to to, to write and report and, and commentate about the game, I didn't have much of a sense of, of the wider hinterland of the game that you're referring to. And I think that's to my discredit. And I think I would have been a better player um, for having had more of an idea, a broader idea of the game. But it's something I've embraced since and uh, I've enjoyed kind of learning about the game probably since I stopped playing. It's interesting you say that because I looked up the scorecard of your first test yesterday. You walked into a team that had Botham and Gower in it. Presumably you knew who they were and you knew about them. Oh, absolutely. I, I mean, they were they were my heroes growing up. I, I I vividly remember David Gow's first ball in Test cricket. I was playing in the back garden with my brother, who's three years younger than me. We were having a game, and my dad called us in and said, "You know, you've got to watch this this lad. Just watch how still he keeps his head." And of course, then he pulled that first ball famously away for four. Um, so you know, he was a bit of a hero of mine, and and I absolutely remember Headingley 81. Um, in fact, I mean, it was the only day of test cricket I went to live before I actually played. It wasn't the great day that Bob bowled them out. It was a boring 100 for John Dyson the day I saw. What a man to see. <laughs> I remember standing in Manchester watching the end of that game through a television, uh, through a window of a shop, you know, that was selling televisions. And that's that's where we watched, watched the end of that game so all those memories were there I mean I watched television uh, watch cricket on television but I, I generally you know was about playing the game really so as you say rightly say 1989 walking into that dressing room with David and Beefy um, these were the the heroes and legends of my youth and I think that that is an old tale for lots of England cricketers coming into the dressing room for the first time and you hope that those legends and heroes don't disappoint you and I was lucky they they welcomed me in and they were they were good company. I'm always kind of fascinated by the ceilings that players hit. I suppose everyone has this experience in the game but your ability and your talent take you a certain way for a while and you run unstopped unless you're Brian Lara or Shane Warne or someone and you reach a point where the games become real and difficult and you hit a ceiling. At that point you have to start to accept what kind of player that you are. Um, you had, I suppose it's fair to say, a golden youth. You were marked out as a future England captain. You were obviously made for test match cricket. And then came your first test match. As we mentioned, the scorecard, Australia was 602 or something. I remember it well. There were 301 for none at the end of the first day. <laughs> and then England lost by 200 runs or whatever. I mean, it's that kind of abrupt introduction to how difficult things can be. I wonder how you feel about those early moments of discovery about yourself as a player when it started to hit home to you exactly what sort of a player that you were well what strikes me looking back at it now from you know the vantage point of 30 years later or, or whatever it is is just how green and naive and unprepared for the highest level i was i basically was two months out of university yeah. um and you will remember back in 1989 that 
a rebel tour, uh, you know, was being discussed throughout that summer. And, and really that's how I got my chance because once the Ashes were lost, the rebel tour was announced. All the players or many of the players who'd been involved in that summer were suddenly out of the equation. Um, and the, the Ashes were done and the selectors were desperately, you know, looking around for some fresh blood. And that's really the only reason why I got a go at that stage. And I, I can vividly remember Tre Trevor Holmes was the Australian leg spinner. And he bowled me a, a ball that I just felt looked strange out of the front of the hand. And it was a flipper. But I'd never seen a flipper before. There were no leg spinners in county cricket. I didn't even know what a flipper was. And that's how naive and green and, and kind of ill-prepared I was for... For that level, so it was very much a case of learning quickly and rapidly on the job, and I think it's to my credit that I managed to do that. I mean, now you look at players, and I get I see the difference because I, I have a you know young and who's just starting out in the professional game, making his way, and I can see the you know how the academies now prepare players and the greater level of preparedness which is not to say that the county game is of a higher standard i'm not entirely sure it is but um i think the general level of preparedness for players when they come into the england team through lions tours through camps that they send their players on abroad just a i think you come to the england team now usually in any case a much more rounded cricketer than certainly I was in 1989. I mean, what was the internal experience like for you? Did you sleep the night before? Was it as you'd imagined it would be when it happened? It, um, it was chaotic. This was a summer, 1989, where we used, I don't know how many players we used, 20-odd. Yeah. David was coming to the end of a second stint as England captain. It had not gone uh, well for him. Um, he was under immense pressure. I remember vividly the next test was at the Oval. I played the first one at Trent Bridge, the second one was at the Oval. I remember vividly on, on the day before that game, peering out from the dressing room onto the ground and seeing David just surrounded by a scrum of photographers and, and uh, journalists and reporters and just thinking that looks a, a very difficult job to me. Um, so it was chaotic. I mean, you know, I didn't know many of the players. The players didn't know me. It was the ashes were we were getting hammered. Um, it was possibly the worst environment to, to kind of come into. And I don't mean that critically of the players, because as I say, the players like Beefy and David were very welcoming. But there was just no sense of an England team as such because of all the reasons that I mentioned, you know, the, the rebel tourists and the ashes going down the pan so it was just pretty chaotic but that said you probably know what it's like as a I don't know as a 21 year old you just don't you're not thinking of all that then yeah. you're just thinking this is a, a great adventure um I mean I was pretty nervous obviously everybody uh, everybody is and, and will be at that stage um and there was a rest day of course in those days test matches had rest days yeah. and after that monumental Australian innings I'd got a duck in the first innings and I think I didn't bat again until after the rest day so you, you have a kind of day stewing on it and I, I remember going back to Old Trafford I think there was a Sunday league game Lancashire playing Essex or something and I went back up there to watch 
Um, and kind of hard to think now that you do that on the pair in, on a pair in the middle of a test match, but you know it's it's a long time ago. Were you conscious of the pair thing? Was it a devastating blow when you got a duck? Um, yes, I remember stewing on a pair. Absolutely. Um, and, and when the first runs came, and I think it was a, a, a kind of nudge behind square off Jeff Lawson, um, there was a huge feeling of relief. I can tell you. I mean, I wouldn't have known then that you know lots of top-notch players had started with a duck, and even some like Graham Gooch with a with a couple of noughts. But um, I was very thankful um, to get off the mark. <laughs> I remember actually. Um, I, I as I say, I was a couple of months out of university, didn't have any money or anything, probably in debt, student debt. And Grey Nichols were my sponsor, as they were throughout my career. And I remember that in the contract, it said, if you get a Test 50, there's a bonus. And I got to 47, and I was thinking of this bonus. <laughs> so I thought it might get me out of student debt. Yeah. And then uh, hit one back to Trevor Hones and was, and was caught and bowled. Did you have an idea in your head of what kind of batsman you wanted to be? Not really. I, I mean, I'd batted a little bit at three for Lancashire. Um, and then opened a bit as well. Um, I think I batted three in that first test match. So I was doing a little bit of both, but, you know, generally in, in the top three. Uh, and it was just a matter of, of learning very quickly on the job, learning about, I mean, this was Australia under Alan Border, so quite a tough um, vocal side at that point. And that was an eye-opener uh, for sure. Uh, you know, Jeff Lawson, Merv Hughes, A.B. himself. Um, so that was great fun, really, just learning in this whole new environment. Um, and as I say, I was completely green and naive. So it was it was a rapid learning curve. The team got hammered and was in a bit of a bad way. And that's something that occurs to many teams, sometimes several times. What I'm interested about is the will of the team and how it manifests and creates itself. Are you conscious when that's happening, that the team itself is being broken in some kind of a way? I don't think I was then in, the, in that uh, first test match or indeed the second test match. Everything was just so new and so different. And you're just on the start of what you thought was going to be this great adventure. And you just really, I think the first thing that you, you're, the first responsibility that you have when you go into the England dressing room as a young player is to get the respect of those other kind of legends in there. In, in my case, you know, David Gower, Ian Both, and these guys that you looked up to and that, that you were, you, they were your heroes. Your first job is to, is to gain their respect to, to kind of get to the point where they think, yeah, he can play a bit and we're happy to have him alongside us in the team. Um, and that really was the limit of my ambition at, at, the, at that stage. Um, and, and obviously things go on from there. You, you get yourself into a position of being a senior player and then captain or whatever. But at that stage, it was simply about just trying to put a marker down a, to show that you were capable at that level and B, to, to show your teammates that you were, you know, you were, you were ready for it. It was kind of a 
generation of change, really, wasn't it? A couple of years after your debut, you were playing that famous game at Headingley against the West Indies, where Graham Gooch played one of the greatest test knocks of all time. It was Mark Ramprakash's debut, Graham Hicks' debut. It wasn't too far away from your move to the captaincy. Were you conscious at that point that this was a moment of change? Did it feel any different to you? I think when Graham took over the captaincy, it started to to feel that way. A, because I was becoming more established. And B, because he made it very clear that he wanted to drive the team in a slightly different direction. You know, the 80s were a, a curious period before I started to play. Obviously, England had some very great moments in the first half of that, of the, of that decade. Um, but then the second half of the decade, um, so around the start of my first class career in 87 until a point that I made a test match debut in 89, you know, things weren't good. Um, yeah. that, those golden years had just started to fade. Um, and so when Graham took over, um, at the end of that Ashes series in 89, took the team to the Caribbean. I didn't go on that tour, but I then played the next summer. He, he made it very clear that he wanted to drive the team in a different direction. And that's when it started to feel like a, a slightly generational shift in the England team. Uh, and obviously then there were wider issues. You, you made the, you referenced the game at Headingley where we beat West Indies. And that was for the first time in a long time. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then that started to, to, to feel a kind of generational shift in a, in a broader sense as well. But I think Graham Gooch was a, a great driving force in those early years of the 90s uh, to try and take the team in a different direction. Uh, yeah, of course, because you batted with him during the 3-3-3, didn't you? Well, I, I was very lucky. When, when I said about learning on the job and learning quickly, that that was my learning experience, really, batting at the other end from... Graham Gooch for four years. I mean, Gucci between 1990 and 94, I think he averaged about 70 in test cricket for England. I mean, you know, you could check the stats, but it's around about 70 and some iconic innings in there that you mentioned, the 150-odd against West Indies at Heading with 300 against India at Lords. But generally, he, he was just a run machine uh, for four years. So I had the great good fortune of opening with him during that time and just learned from him, 22 yards away, watching this great player enjoy a fabulous kind of Indian summer to his career. And then all that went with it, all the training and the de dedication and the, de the ability and the desire to turn his game around, even when he was, you know, 35, 36 yeah. years of age and still pushing right as hard as he ever had at, at the end of his career. And that, that was my great good fortune, really, that I had four years at at the other end from a great England player enjoying the most golden run of his career. We talked earlier of this realisation of where you sit in the game as a player, what kind of level you're going to achieve. Uh, not long after your first tour as captain, you encountered Lara and the 375. Again, you know, an almost unthinkable display of batting. Continued for another couple of months and finished off with his 501. When you're looking at that level of cricket, how does it feel as a cricketer yourself? Well, in, in Brian Lara's case, I played against him, actually. We, he, the Youth World Cup, the very first Youth World Cup in 1988 in Australia, he was uh, on the West Indies side. Um, so I knew him a little bit. He, he didn't shine in that World Cup, although the pitches were very difficult. We were out in the outback of South Australia, Mildura, Renmark, Berry, and there were some tricky old pitches. Um, 
But then, I mean, that innings in Antigua is a flat, flat pitch, a graveyard of a pitch prepared by Andy Roberts. But he was playing on a different level. He, he genuinely was on a different level, I think, from anybody else in that game, for sure. And probably of all the players that I played against, if you said to me, you know, take one that you could just watch as, a, as an opposition captain or bowler or batter or whatever... He'd be the one that was the most joyful batsman to watch, I think, that I played against. I'm not necessarily saying he's the one you'd have your money on uh, if you wanted somebody to bat for your life. or and, you know There may be other players who are more productive, but I think in terms of the pure pleasure and the grace with which he played and the style with which he played, he... He was the one, I thought. He was a wonderful batsman. You yourself had a good start to your test career and then a slight lull and then you were made captain. And then all around you, there was this kind of generational change. These players were going to appear, not just Lara, but this fearsome era of bowlers who I mentioned in the introduction who were going to follow you around for the rest of your career. I wonder if you ever reflected on that. You know, did you ever think, what did I just live through? <laughs> well, I, I was very happy actually. I mean, I don't reflect on it that much unless I'm, I'm, you know, doing things like this podcast, like this, where I'm forced to. But I'm very happy that I played in an era uh, of great bowlers, um, and I think there are a, a great uh, era of fast bowlers currently. Actually, in the last two or three years, or maybe yes, a bit yes. longer, I think we've seen a renaissance of fast bowling in Test cricket um, to the point where. You know, there's a fabulous crop of fast bowlers around, and there certainly was when I played. Um, but that's great. I mean, that, that that is Test cricket. Surely, you, you want to be playing at an absolutely high level. You want to test yourself against the best, uh, and you want to really discover how good, or indeed how not good, and different you are. Um, and you know, that was certainly the case. Uh, throughout my career opening the batting against every team would have a couple of really high quality yeah. fast bowlers and and it's something Bob Simpson who kept coach Lancashire um, a little bit uh, said to me he wasn't really referring to me and, and my troubles against Glenn McGrath but he said you know most players eventually reach their natural level of incompetence I think he put it um, and and that was certainly the case with McGrath. You know, I had horrendous problems against him in the, in the back half of of my career. And it's always slightly coloured, uh, you know, people's view of my efforts in Ashes cricket. They always say, well, it's an indifferent record against Australia, which of course is true in the round. But if you broke it down to pre-McGrath and post-McGrath, you get two very different stories. And that really was the case that, um, you know, in the, in the series from 97 onwards, I just didn't really perform in the Ashes because of McGrath. But prior to that, I'd done pretty well against Australia. What was it like back then? I mean, now players are slave to the data and the video. They sit in their hotel rooms and they get a video of their latest uh, dismissal via email. Did you have any of that? You know, when McGrath was on top of you or you were fighting out Alan Donald or Shane Warne for the first time, what kind of background about them did you actually have? Well, nothing like now where players, you know, will have apps on their iPads and they can access as much or as little as information as, as they want to. Anything on opposition players is there at the, the push of a button. Um, but that wasn't the case then. Obviously, you could get, you could ask for the old VHS videotape of, of your dismissals, which which if you wanted, you could get. 
Um, but I suppose the limit of it was maybe just watching the highlights on television in the evening. Right. And then, right. you know, watching yourself briefly or, <laughs> or not so briefly, depending on how the day went. And, and those were the occasions that you watched yourself a little bit um, on, on television. But obviously nothing like the level of, of support that is there today. So if you had done well, would you make a point of tuning in? Sometimes I, I was a bit of both, really. I didn't always tune into the highlights. Sometimes I did if I wanted to watch something. Uh, but and again, as I say, you could get the coach to get you a, a tape of of whatever you wanted. Um, I I was if it was on and I was there, I would watch it. But I didn't go out of my way to watch. What did you think when you saw yourself batting for the first time? You know, there's always that shock of seeing yourself on TV. It would have been quite late uh, in my uh, teenage life that I would have seen myself batting for the first time. What I always remember is actually that it always looked slightly better than it felt. <laughs> Maybe that's like a piece that you write, that old yeah, yeah. line about, you know, it's it's never as bad as you fear or never as good as you hope. Maybe there's a bit of that in watching yourself bat as well. Um and I remember Bob Willis, you know, telling me that he, he'd always thought he had a classical action like Fred Truman until the first time that he saw himself bowl on television. Um, there's always a bit of that, I think. At that point when you were going through your, your troubles with McGrath, and now the first thing you would do is reach for data, isn't it? How many times has he got me out? How has he got me that many times? How is he actually getting me out? Were you doing something similar? Were you, were you thinking about the, the stats or the data and trying to combat him in that way? Oh, absolutely. You, you didn't need to be reminded of it. They reminded you of it from first, second and third slip every, every day of the test series. And of course, when it starts to tot up to 10, 11, 12 times that he's got you out, it's... Yeah. You're constantly reminded of it. It's a, no, it's a battle. That is a battle. And that, of course, is what, you know, it's the old cliche, isn't it? Five test match series. That That is the greatest test. And it usually comes against Australia. Um, yeah. And that ability for a bowler to really chisel through some weaknesses and open some weaknesses and keep on at you time and time again. That's what really separates those five test series from you know, a couple of tests where a bowler might get you a couple of times, but then you get a breather if it's only a two-test series. So there's no, it's relentless, there's no escape. Um, and of course, what was different then, it, you know, there wasn't quite the scrutiny that there is now from a television and social media perspective. Um, you know, the level of analysis that we will do on Sky is far more in-depth than would have been the case um, when I played 20, 30 years ago. Um, the level of scrutiny on social media, you know, the inability to escape the noise around the game, all those are challenges that are of a different dimension, I think, for players now than players of 30 years ago. So each era and each generation has its challenges in the way that we perhaps didn't have the level of support and the level of analysis to help us. We also didn't have the level of analysis yeah. to to challenge us on television or in, in social media. So, you know, it swings and roundabouts. So did you ever feel beaten down psychologically? I mean, you always came across as incredibly rounded and incredibly tough. Oh, absolutely. No, I mean, that, that's all a, that's all a front, um, you know, by 
2001, uh, particularly well, nine, the 1998-99 series. I was really struggling in Australia with my back. I had five cortisone injections the day before that test match in Brisbane. So I was, you know, kind of struggling with other challenges on that particular tour. But by then, you know, my final Ashes series in 2001, it's preying on your mind all the time. Um, any batsman will tell you that if a bowler starts to get one over on you, that's an incredibly difficult psychological place to be. And I don't know whether um, having, you know, professional help would have helped back then. I don't know. In the, in the end, you've got to kind of go out and, and solve it yourself. Um, but definitely, I mean, you know, you try not to show it and you try not to look down and you try not to look bothered by it. But anybody will tell you it preys on your mind. So do you think it was affecting the rest of your life? Oh, yes. I mean, there, there's times when you're not sleeping well, when you're, you know, thinking about your game and, and, and the problems and all the difficulties of the game. It, it is a it is a mentally, I think, among the toughest of games. I think, I mean, bowling is a is a physical hardship unless you've got things like the yips to worry about. But it's a, it's a real physical challenge. But batting is, is all about the mental challenge, the the time waiting in the dressing room to bat, the time, you know, going to bed on a pair or, you know, waiting to face that bowler who started to to find chinks in your armour. That is the, the challenge of the game and it is a very difficult challenge. And I, I've never tried to forget that, actually, in all the yeah, yeah. writing and and commentating that I do, whilst obviously you, you have to be critical from time to time and you have to prize open you know what what a batsman's doing wrong i've never tried to forget the difficulty of the game i always tried to empathize uh, with that because obviously I, I know what it was like and i went through it myself uh, tanya's great description of you that i mentioned in the intro of your impeccable grumpiness as a player <laughs> uh, was very quickly dispelled once you went into the media and i wondered how you found that transition and when you realized that you wanted to stay in the game in that capacity um I, I, I've always been very bad at planning uh, things. I've never been somebody who sits and thinks, right, in five years' time, I want to have achieved this or I want to be doing that. Or you know, I'm, I'm hopeless like that. I just I try and go along and do whatever I'm doing as well as I can and hope that in the end things will work out. So I never sat down and planned things out. And in a way, you know, the game kind of, sucks you in I don't know what what otherwise what I'd have done otherwise but I started off dipping my toe into the water doing some commentary but that was just in the summers for channel four yeah. um, I tried to do some other things in the winters and then obviously moved to sky in 2005 and, and the writing was a bit the same I you know started dipping my toe into the water by doing columns in the Sunday Telegraph once a week and then obviously I've done it more full-on uh, for the times for the last 10 10 years or so um, so it's never been planned. Uh, uh, it's just happened that way. But I, I've enjoyed it actually. I mean, I, it's a great, it's a great game. It's a fascinating game. I still, it still fascinates me now. I still enjoy turning up to a, a test match or indeed a, a T20 um, and, and seeing all the, the things that the game throws up. I'm still learning. There's things that I mean, the game changes all the time. So you have to be prepared to change with it. 
Um, and, you know, in the last couple of years, I've, I've started to delve a little bit more into the history and of the game and all the great stories that the, that the game throws up. You know, in lockdown, I managed to start a piece on historical photos from the Times yeah, archive. Yeah, I, got, I went into the archive at Bow and hunted around for a couple of days and had a bit of help from the archivists there. And, and you know, so many great photographs and stories, endless stories. And I do think at the heart of the game, of, of telling, of, of writing and, and talking about the game is still that storytelling. I mean, yeah, yeah, I know that data and analytics is a big part of the game now. And certainly for anybody who's in coaching or managing and, you know, for the drafts and all those kind of things, data is absolutely essential. But I do think for writers and for commentators, that essential storytelling is still at the heart of, communication about the game it's interesting that you're one of the few players that wrote your own autobiography quite early i mean a book isn't one of the main things a player would do when they retire how did you find that that was something you wanted to do um i just uh, when i finished playing i had i i signed to do the stuff for channel four in the summer and so i had this winter spare and i just thought what should i do and i thought well why not write write the book um I mean, I'd always been an avid reader, but more of fiction and non-fiction. As I say, I'd never really read widely about the game, although I started to as soon as I stopped playing. Um, but it just seemed something to do to, to kind of pass the time, fill the time. Took myself off for a few months. Um, and as you say, really didn't really know what I was doing, but enjoyed the process. Um, Recognised that I, I quite enjoyed putting words together and, and therefore that's something that I wanted to carry on doing. Um, I remember vividly actually, I, 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 as I said, I took myself away and uh, the day that I flew home, having completed the manuscript, yeah. was the day of Ben Holyoke's death. I oh, still remember really? it now. I mean, it's the, the saddest thing really. You know, I got home early one morning, switched on the television and that news that news came out, so yeah, incredibly so sad. Without going over the top, um, I suppose the moment I realised that as a writer you were prepared to go to places that other people weren't necessarily willing to go and to use the position that you were in was your Muhammad Amir story when in, in the middle of his ban you went back and wrote about him and then your book on gambling starts on the West Bank. You were kind of going to places as a writer that you wouldn't necessarily have to go. So I thought here's a writer who's sort of driven more by story. He's driven to go and find stuff out. Yeah, I, it was interesting. When I, as I, when I stopped playing, I, as I said, I'd not read widely about cricket or sport necessarily but I, I i rang up a couple of old sports writers who are no longer around now sadly jim lawton and hugh McElvenny, and said look gu guide me to some some great sports writing and they pointed me to america and i read a lot and you know some great columns like death of a racehorse by wc hines which taught me that you know, you can underwrite a story. You, you don't have to overwrite it yeah. for, for the emotion of the story. Um, Mark Cram's brilliant piece on the thriller in Manila. So I read a lot about sport generally and, you know, started to read columnists like Jimmy Breslin, the grave digger, and his great column on the surgeon who operated on JFK. 
And, you know, I realised that the heart of, of it all really is just good reporting, getting somewhere, speaking to people, reporting. That's at the heart of of all the great writing, really. Um, so I started to become more interested in, in good writing and good sports writing. Um, and I've, I've tried to keep it going, really. I mean, obviously, as you will know, there are days when you open the laptop and think, God, what am I going to write today? But I think if you keep open-minded and keep curious and keep prepared to kind of get out there and speak to people and, you know, go to places, and, and that's been the hardest thing in lockdown. I, I still love going to matches, going on tour, getting out on location. Um, and, of course, we haven't been able to do that as much in the last year. But I do think that kind of good reporting is, is at the heart of, of storytelling. The gambling book you wrote is particularly interesting. It's sort of part history, part exploration of why people do it. It does touch on cricket, obviously, and it's an ongoing area of interest for you. Uh, seemed to me to be not a road not taken, but you kind of moved back towards cricket again since then. Do you think cricket will always be your focus or do you have ambition to go elsewhere? Um, that's, a, that's a good question. I'm always beating myself up about the fact that I haven't um, written more widely or, you know, found a good non-cricket, non-fiction book to write. Um, as you know, cricket is a curious game, though, because it, it sucks you in and it, it demands so much of your time. If you're a player, it demands your time. If you're a, a journalist and a commentator, it demands lots of your time. You know, this summer, there's barely going to be a, a day without a, a day of international cricket. So that's the problem. You kind of get sucked in. But I do have, I mean, I beat myself up all the time about, you know, lack of achievement, as, a, as I guess most people do. But um, I do have ambitions to to find other good stories to write. And I have written, you know, on other topics for the Times. You know, I, I've done the Masters a couple of times. Uh, I was there for the great Tiger Woods experience. Love writing that piece, you know, 1,400 words on deadline. One of the great stories. I, I've done the, the Ryder Cup and the, the Gold Cup. And, you know, I've done lots of other different sports and I've done a bit of politics from time to time. But... So I do have, um, I'd like to um, write widely, but as, as I said at the moment, you kind of get sucked into the cricket and it, and it demands a lot of your time. Mike, that was fantastic. Thank you so much. John, it's a pleasure, a pleasure to chat. The Night Watchman podcast is brought to you by Rathbones Investment Management for individuals, charities and financial advisors. We couldn't do it without them, so please head over to rathbones.com to find out more about what they do. Well, that was Mike Atherton, uh, the second England captain that we were lucky enough to have on the Night Watchman podcast. And I'm sure you'll agree, a fantastic way to round off our first series. Uh, Mike, of course, is available to you on Sky Sports Television and in the pages of The Times. And thanks to you for listening. If you've enjoyed it, then do spread the word. And if you're feeling especially kind, then why not leave us a review on your podcast app? The Night Watchman podcast is written and hosted by John Houghton, produced and edited by James Wallace.